The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're continuing our study in Mark 14 and we're picking up in verse 60. And here Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest, him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls and the most high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would open up our hearts as this word is opened and is reading us. I pray that, Lord, we would see what a faulty foundation any trust in self is. And pray that, Lord, we would cling to you and that you would cling to us. And we thank you that your grip on us will not let us go. We ask that you would show us our Savior and our need of him. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, last week we considered Jesus' trial, and we looked at Jesus' confession in verse 62 in particular, where he says, I am, which is this great, you know, you have three passages of Scripture of the Old Testament, or Hebrew Scriptures coming together. You have Exodus 3, where God says, I am, that I am, and here Jesus is saying, I am, and then he says, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And he's coming, and this is Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, which we considered last week that in this amazing passage in Daniel 7, and that he's at the right hand of power, which is Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But what you have in this passage in typical Mark fashion is what we've been calling, <clears throat> all along we've been referring to these as Markin sandwiches. 
And the idea is that Mark will start to tell a story, but then he'll weave another story in the middle and then come back to it. And the idea here is that he begins, which we didn't read in the text, but last week we're told in verse 54, we'll come back to this in a minute, that Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And so we're introduced to the subject that, hey, Peter's with, he's with uh, the crowd as Jesus is on, on the trial and they're going to Caiaphas' house. We, we know that it's at his house because uh, we're told that Peter is down below and the idea is that Jesus is up on the roof, which was the second floor where they would have big meeting room, and that <clears throat> Peter's down below in the courtyard. But then the <clears throat> next part is meant to be a contrast. We're given a great contrast between Jesus and Peter, right? So we're told... Here that here we have Jesus' courage contrasted with Peter's cowardice. Jesus is standing before the most powerful men in Israel, and he's giving this great confession. Peter is standing before a single lowly servant girl, and he's a, he's a coward. He doesn't speak up for Jesus. Jesus shows his strength. Peter shows his weakness. Jesus is all about your self-preservation and is concerned to save us, and Peter's concerned all about himself and his self-preservation. Jesus stands and doesn't stumble during the trial. Peter stumbles three times in denying his Lord. It's quite the contrast, and that's why we're given this title here of two trials. Jesus is on trial, and he stands firm, and, and then Peter's on trial, and his trials turn into a denial. And there are many lessons from this text. It's a very sobering text. If you ever watch like air disaster documentaries on TV, you'll usually get a step-by-step process of what went wrong and what led to this plane coming out of the sky and crashing. And usually, not always, but usually what went wrong is pilot error. And somewhere along the way, the pilot makes a mistake, and it's usually the main reason why planes crash. Well, here is our Peter is flying high. At least he thought he was, and he really didn't know how long uh, he he was going to be before he was going to crash. And he runs into turbulence here called temptation. And what we see here is what Peter went wrong, where he went wrong, and yet how the Lord might use it for good. And so we can consider this in our own lives of lessons to learn. There's about six things that I think we can learn from this, probably a lot more, but I'm going to share six. Number one, (laughs) moving right along. Uh, If you remember, Peter really thought he was better than the other disciples. And he even said, though all fall away, I will not. I am ready. I am ready to lay down my life for you. And so you have to reconcile with this fact of what would have happened if Peter had not sinned and had prevailed? What would have happened to the church? I think it would have been a disaster because truly you would have Peter-built Christians and everybody else is is a freightliner or international, but I'm a Peter-built. We're a Peter church. We're a Peter denomination. We're, we're a Peter Presbytery. The rest of you, well, you can go to that church, but we over here, we're a Peter church. We don't fall away. We're better than the rest of you. We've sized the rest of you up, and we can tell you're all going to fall away, but not me. So if Peter hadn't 
fallen with this great confidence in self, can you imagine what a stink that would have produced in the church? You'd have everybody thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a Peter disciple. I'm, I'm a Peter. And what does that communicate to the rest of you? Well, I guess you just don't measure up. So in one sense, thankfully, the Lord used this because Peter is very pompous. He's proud. He's trusting in himself. And it's going to lead him into this great fall into sin. There's some Proverbs for us to remember this morning. I'll read a few. But Proverbs 11:12 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Jesus put it like this, he who exalts himself will be humbled, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Or as Paul put it, take heed lest you think you're standing firm, lest you should fall. There's a great lesson here to any of us. Anytime that we make one of these great declarations, you know, I used to think I was a good driver until about three months ago. You know, I thought I was just better than the average bear and proved that, no, I know you're not. Peter didn't listen to Jesus. Peter actually thought he was smarter than Jesus. Think about this. Jesus told him what's going to happen. Hey, one of you, 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 you know, Jesus, you know, he's going to say, somebody's going to deny me, somebody's going to betray me. And he tells him, Simon Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you. And he tells him what's going to happen. Well, what does Peter say? He's, no, he, I mean, it's in, it's in your reflection quote. You just go back and look at it. I mean, we read the part this morning where it started, and Jesus tells him what's going to happen. And Peter goes on, and, and he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He doesn't believe a thing he's saying. So he didn't listen to Jesus. He thought he was smarter than Jesus. And the interesting thing is, what, what do we know about Jesus? And Jesus is all-knowing, and he's sovereign. He knows every detail. He knows what's going to happen when. What day? It's actually going to happen tonight, Peter, and it's actually going to happen before the rooster crows. And he knows when that rooster, he is so sovereign that he knows exactly what time that night, which rooster in the universe is going to crow, and at what time, and at what exact moment Peter's going to deny him. And literally, when the last denial is leaving his lips, and immediately is, is in the text, meaning no sooner than he gets out the last denial and the rooster is crowing and Peter is denying Jesus. Jesus is absolutely sovereign over every detail that's happening to him with his trial. Every detail of Peter's life he knows is exactly what it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, what's going to happen. He's in charge and he's all-knowing, but Peter somehow thinks he knows better. Satan has to come to Jesus with this request. He has to get permission. We see how Jesus is sovereign over the enemy. Satan's going to use this for evil, but Jesus will use it for good. And Jesus tells us every detail of what's going to happen. Once again, the Proverbs have much to teach us. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The wisest of men, the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, has spoken into Peter's life, and he doesn't believe it because the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six just says, He who trusts in himself is a fool. 
but one who walks in wisdom will be safe. Next point, verse 54. Just look at verse 54 in your text. It's not in your bulletin, but it just says, and Peter followed him at a distance. I mean, you just like repeat that like 10 times, and you realize, man, that is just like tons of sermons have been preached on that text. How do you follow Jesus at a distance? Peter followed him at a distance. He followed him at a distance. He wanted to hang out at night where all the deeds of darkness are going down, but he doesn't want to identify too closely to Jesus, so I'm going to follow at a distance. What happens when you follow Jesus at a distance? I want Jesus, but I want him at a distance. I want to keep a good length so that people don't see him and immediately connect me with him. So I'm going to follow, but I'm going to follow at a distance. How's that going to go for you? The best thing you can do is to go public with your faith. Until you go public and tell your coworkers or your neighbors, I'm a Christian. I mean, until that just comes out of your mouth. I mean, I've just known from my own personal experience. I'm going to lay low. I'm going to follow at a distance. And like you get going to be put in these situations where you're just going to get hammered. It's like when you go to the ocean and you say, well, I, I, I don't want to get wet. And so you go in real slow and it's coming up to here, but all the waves are and it's coming up here and you're getting colder and colder. What do you have to do? you got to dive in under the first wave and your whole body gets wet and then you're fine with the waves. But as long as you're trying to tiptoe and dance and, you know, you see these people, ooh, you know, just get in the water. Let me illustrate. We had a friend years ago, sorry for your comic excitement there. We had a friend, friend of mine years ago, I was in a small group with him, and he's telling us, I'm going to New York, you guys need to pray for me because... These guys up there, they want to take me to one of these scandalous, risque bars where the women are dancing and who knows if they're wearing clothes or how much clothes they're even wearing. And he's asking for prayer because he doesn't know what to do. What do you think we're telling him? <laughs> you need to tell him you're a Christian. Then they're going to leave you alone. You tell him, I'm a Christian, I don't do that. But we want to dance around. No, I'm, I'm married. You know, I do this, you know, all this moral stuff or whatever. Of course they're going to tempt you. But as soon as you dive in and just say, you know, I, thank you, no thank you. But I'm a Christian. I don't do that. You guys can do your thing. I'm, I'm heading home. Until you go public with your faith, you're going to be hit with this stuff. So years ago, we had something funny. Ivan might remember this story. We were, we were on a retreat. I don't know if you were in my group or not. We, went, we were going on a men's retreat, and we were golfing in Hagerstown. I don't know if you remember this story or not. And it was, our foursome was a little bit slow because of me, probably, because I usually hit this way and that way, and we got to go find my ball and stuff. And so we were letting a foursome go through. And so this foursome came up, saw us four cool guys, you know, playing golf. And so they wanted to talk tough. Be cool. And so the one guy proceeds to tell us that, hey, man, there is this great bar right up the road, and the, the women are, you know, you know. The, he just starts going on and on about this, you know, scantily clad women's 
place to go for the guys. And I said, well, I'm a pastor, and we're going on a men's retreat. We're going to be studying the Bible. I don't think we're going to be interested in that. And his buddies, the other three guys in the foursome, they howled. They were like, you are so busted. And they just completely turned on him because the joke was now on him. So if you go public, you're going to be better off. So you got to go public with your faith. Now, not to say, I mean, there's been a few times in my life where I've just completely caved. I can't stand up here and tell you, man, I am, I am no Peter. Like, you know, I am Mr., Mr. You know, confident. I mean, one time early on when, we, when I was married, and this is right when Haddon was born, we got a five-generation picture with Haddon, with his, you know, Kim, father, grandfather, and great-great-grandmother, is that? So, yeah, your grandmother. So, so we're with Hazel, and she's like in her mid-90s or something. She's up there. And she finds out that I'm a seminary student. And I think she was a believer because she wanted to hear my story about, tell me something about, tell me about Jesus or something. And my father-in-law is right there. And it was one of the worst caves in history. I didn't say anything. I just completely caved because I was afraid of my father-in-law. And so I think I heard a rooster crowing. I mean, it was that bad. I mean, it could have just, just, I mean, it was the worst ever lay an egg. I didn't, I just caved. Opportunity was tossed. I mean, it couldn't have been an easier softball toss, and I just whiffed. I just took it, and I didn't swing at all. So I'm not going to, you know, stand up here and tell you, we've all had these moments where we've been like Peter, and there are things for us to learn from this. But we can't follow Jesus at a distance. So if you're trying to be on the fence... And like, you know, I mean, I tried that all through high school. I tried to like, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, but I don't want anybody from school to know that I go to church. And yet, always wherever I went, a lady that worked in the, in the back with a thing on her hair to hold her hair back, and she, they're always like very elderly, who was not cool to the, to the cool kids. And I'm always going through the line with a couple cool people trying to hang out with the cool crew. And then she'd say, hi, Charlie, how are you? And they'd say, how do you know her? I'd say, oh. She goes to my church. You, know. you go to church? You know, and then, yeah, I go to church. So, yeah, I mean, it was bad. I was trying to follow Jesus at a distance. It didn't work. So what happens when you try to follow Jesus as a, at a distance with these deeds of darkness that are going on at night, what happens? You're going to get, there's a serious under, undertow, and the undertow is much worse at night. And if there's drinking involved in an undertow, it's pretty much a riptide. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Best thing to do is go to bed. But the undertow of temptation is incredibly strong at night. And here, Peter, he's confident. He is uber confident in himself, and he finds himself saying the stupidest and most regretful things. You can't follow Jesus at a distance and keep quiet. So his first denial has him lying. He first says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He's just trying to deflect. Deflect, dodge, head to the other room. 
I don't know. I don't know what you're talking. About. I don't know what you mean. I don't understand what you're talking about. Whoop, I'm gonna head to the head, of, head on inside, head into the gateway. Then wait a minute. That was just a little servant girl. You're telling me Jesus is in front of all the greatest powers, the Sanhedrin, the high priest himself. I mean, these is, this is power, all capital letters. And this is just a little servant girl. I think, I think Peter was prepared for the big one. I mean, if somebody had pulled out a sword, you know, and said, you know, are you one of his followers? We're going to take you down. He was probably ready. But what caught him off guard was it was just a little servant girl. It came in, the, in a way that he didn't expect. Temptation comes in the funniest of places. And it comes from this little servant girl, but it starts him in the direction. And once he started in the direction, now you got to dig in deeper. Now a few of the bystanders, they heard what this girl said, and they, hey, this man's one of them. And again, he denies it the second time. And then the third time is the low blow. He begins to curse. You know, when somebody's really got to work up a lie, you know, I, I swear, I swear to you I didn't do this. Yeah, I swear to you. And he says... I don't know this man. That's the low point. I do not know this man of whom you speak. Of all the things we just read in those stories this morning, the one who has healed your mother-in-law, the one who has given you this great catch of fish, the one who enabled you to walk on water, the one whom you confess that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one whom you've seen transfigured in all of his glory, in a glorified state. You've seen it. But now, all of a sudden, you know not this man. Now, I don't know the psychological term that we call this. When you distance yourself from somebody you love in such a way, in a sinful state, that you lose precious terms, like my wife. And instead of my wife, you say... This woman whom you gave me, she gave to me and I ate, like Adam. This woman? How did she become this woman? That's your wife. And now it's this woman you gave me. That's what we call like a distancing yourself. Or like Abraham. Here he has, you know, gotten Hagar pregnant. And now he says, she's your servant and your power due to her as you please. I mean, that is just pacification on steroids, you know? I don't want anything to do with it. I'm a guy, and I am dealing with conflict. It's all you. He's not doing... I mean, that is removing yourself tenfold. We have so many of these in the Bible. God comes to, to Abel, and he says, where's your brother Abel? What does Cain say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You are your brother's keeper. That's your brother whom you just killed. When the elder brother hears music and dancing and he sees the party and he hears that it's for his younger prodigal son or brother who's come home, he refuses to go into the party and his dad comes out and he lets him have it. Look, these many years I've slaved for you and I never disobeyed your command and you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home, you killed the, who devoured your, your livelihood of a prostitute, you killed the fatted calf for him. This son of yours. This son of yours? That's your brother. Watch how you speak. Because if we say that in conversations, we can do some serious damage. 
you get mad and you say something like, you know, well, he's your child. It's like, what? It's your child too. <laughs> like, really? Like, we could do these kind of distancing stuff. And to think that Peter himself would sink this low to say, this man, I do not know this man. And it's at that very moment in time, space, and history, we're told in Luke twenty-two sixty that immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. They made eye contact. And remembering the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. Right after he says, I don't know this man. And it literally says in the text that he broke down and wept. And this word of broke down, it's this idea that he's heaving. He's, he's weeping. It's, it's this word of violence is often how the word is used in the New Testament. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a violent, it's a seizing. They went and seized him earlier. There, when Jesus is arrested, they seized him. It's the same word. And now he's, he's overcome. He's seized. He's, he's weeping. He's wailing. It's a violent heaving of tears. And what I want you to know is kind of like two different places where you can land with this text this morning. One is this, you might be still thinking, well, I would never do something like that until you've done it. And then you're over here thinking, I don't know how I could ever be forgiven. So if you're over here thinking you could never do that, where's your confidence? And it better not be in self, because this is a true text that says, no confidence in the flesh. Put none there. It's a banana peel and worse. It's not going to work. It's a slippery slope. So no confidence in self, but those who've fallen, and that's where most of us are, as we've done something like this. We've, we've committed sins that we, are rack, we rack our brains and we say, how in the world could I ever do such a thing and call myself a Christian? Well, the good news is, this is where the Lord loves to minister His grace. He came to save sinners. He already knew Peter was going to do this. I think the look of Jesus was a look of compassion on Peter. Peter's no longer so confident and cocky, is he? After this encounter, he's a different person. When the Lord restores him in John 21... You see a different Peter, and you see a different Peter going forward. Jack Miller has these classic two cheer-ups of the gospel. And that's on the little catchphrase on the bottom of my email. And the two cheer-ups are, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think. And cheer up, you're more dearly loved than you ever dared hope. The, it, unless there's a gospel in the middle of those cheer-ups, they don't make any sense. Cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think. I mean, it's the last thing our culture wants to to celebrate. But the idea is that we discover things about ourselves, and we can't believe, I didn't know I could go that low. I didn't know I had that in me. I didn't know. And we're still making these self-discoveries about ourselves, as Peter does here. Cheer up. You're worse than you think. For Peter, he didn't know. The Lord loved him, though. You're more dearly loved than you ever did hope. There's nothing new to Jesus. This isn't new. Jesus is going to a cross to die for him. 
Jesus is showing you what strength looks like. Jesus is showing you what courage looks like. Jesus is showing you what it means to surrender and to suffer and to die in our place. He's committed to this cross. He is resolutely going to the cross. He must die for his people. I must die for this sin too, Peter, as he's looking at him. I'm going to go to the cross. He's got this covered. He loves his people. The other, I think, is helpful to to remember is that the enemy loves to use these things against us. He loves to bring condemnation. Martin Luther himself, he struggled with these great battles with the devil. He talked about how the prince of darkness often tormented him during the night, waking him, plaguing him with wicked thoughts and accusations. And there's a couple things that Luther, Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, Here's a couple things he said about dealing with this. If you're feeling low, like Peter did here. He said, the devil plagues me at times, too, creating such a tempest and a fire over a forgivable sin that I find I don't know what to do. Those are his tactics with sins. He's a virtuoso and a champion when it comes to sin and death, reproaching a person in a very masterful manner. So he's talking about how great this foe is. So what did Luther do? This is what he said. So when the the, the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell. You tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my, on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. He also says you should tell the devil, just by telling me that I'm a miserable great sinner, you're placing a sword and a weapon in my hand, which I can decisively overcome you. Yea, with your own weapon, I can kill and floor you. For if you tell me that I'm a poor sinner, I, on the other hand, can tell you that Jesus died for sinners and is their intercessor. You remind me of the boundless, great faithfulness and the benefaction of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him I direct you. You may accuse and contemn him. Let me rest in peace. For on his shoulders, not on mine, lie all my sins. They're on him, not on you. A few of my... Favorite two sections of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I would just say to you, if you've never read a, a creed before, like the Westminster Shorter Catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism, they're actually really helpful for our souls to actually take in and read one. Just read, what, what is it? Take in the whole. Like start with the Shorter Catechism. Just start and just read it. You'll, you'll, you'll come away with a greater understanding of like, what all Christ has done for you. But in chapter 17 and 18 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, I feel like it's a lot more pastoral. And the chapter 17 is of the perseverance of the saints. This is the three articles. Just listen, I'm going to read a little bit. This is the 1640s. This is what we ascribe to as the church when a bunch of great godly pastors came together in the 1640s in Westminster Abbey in England, and they wrote this thing called the Westminster Confession, which we still are ascribing to. And this is what they wrote. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the, to the end and be saved. And then it lists all the scripture references. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will but upon the immutability of the decree decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father 
upon the efficacy and the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and the abiding of the Spirit and the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from which arises also the certainty and the infallibility thereof. Nevertheless, they may through the temptations of Satan and the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, they grieve His Holy Spirit, they come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, they have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, they hurt and scandalize others, and they bring temporal judgment upon themselves. So though all those things are true, that you will not fall away, it doesn't mean that you can't fall into sin and and bring difficult pain into your life and to others. But then the next chapter is on the assurance of grace and salvation. I'm just going to read the last article. He says this. They say this. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation, divers ways shaken. That's a big word for in many or various ways shaken. They can have their assurance shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving of it. Falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, yet are they never destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, the love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which by the operation of the spirit, this assurance in due time be revived and by which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. I commend those two chapters to you from the Westminster Confession. But I would also say to us in closing that when Peter, his denials, they you, now when you read First Peter and Second Peter, you see his heart. You read them differently. And you see that Peter is a changed man. And so now when he's writing and he says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded, you read a little differently. When you read, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation or nor nor who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good for if you should suffer for righteousness sake you'll be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect or since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So now as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evil adulterer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. 
clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. This is Peter talking now. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then he just begins Second Peter with Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's no longer a Peter-built Christian, is he? We're all equal standing by the righteousness in God of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't boast in anything of ourselves. Our only boast is in the Lord. And we see Peter as a changed man. And he goes on to do great things for the Lord. The righteous man falls seven times, but rises again, the Proverbs say. Where are you this morning? If you are fallen, and we are all there at times, we rise because of Jesus. Put your trust in him and remove all confidence in self. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you came to save sinners, sinners like us. We thank you that your name is Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. What an incredible promise. Thank you for your mission, for your mission being accomplished, and for it now being applied to our lives. May we rest in that this very day. In Jesus' name, amen.